Hi, and welcome to the Burning Ones podcast. Our desire is to see people all around the world burn for one name, Jesus. We pray that you experience the love and power of Him through this journey. Thank you for joining us, and may burning witnesses arise. You can open it to Isaiah 56. We're going to use Isaiah 56 as our primary passage. Um, as you're turning there in, in whatever way you may have your scriptures, whether it's pages or digital, um, it's really a joy for our family, our team. Um, our team is family. So it's, re- it's really an incredible honor for us to be here with you guys. Uh, we don't take it lightly. We, we joke all the time. We're not just looking for things to do necessarily. So we take it really serious. Uh, we give our whole life to it. And so we're honored to have been able to share these last days together. And again, as we said last night, it's not ultimately just about the days themselves, but the days of gathering fit into a bigger picture and a broader scope of work that God is doing. And so it's an incredible honor to be able to participate, to link arms with those of you who are laying down your lives and are bleeding out for the purposes of God in this hour of history, in this harvest field, right? We're going back home, right? So we, we have a similar assignment. We bear a similar burden for our city, um, for the church that we're a part of, for the covenant people and the house of the Lord that we're longing to see established in our city. Um, but it's a privilege for us to be able to join together with you to sow in, to contribute, to serve in whatever capacity God would allow, um, to see his desires accomplished in you, through you, in this city and region, ultimately for his purpose of readying a people for the return of his son. So we're excited to be with you. I don't say that again because I feel that I have to. Um, I say that again because it's, it's honest and I'm trying to communicate it in as much of an honest way as I know how. Uh, we really do. Love your pastors, David and Beverly. We love you guys. Um, you guys have been an extraordinary blessing to us. Uh, we just don't see each other on the days of gathering. We, we have times um, in prayer and dreaming and talking about the things of the Lord and, and all of these things in an ongoing way um, that help to ready us for the days that, that we seem to be together this way. Um, but we say that because we, we might have a vantage point that others don't have, um, and they have no reason to present themselves the way that they do to us and to our team when no one else is around, right? When no one else is around. It's not for some image or some reward or even some resume type thing, uh, but we've seen tears and we've heard prayers, and, and it's just been an incredible blessing to be connected to you guys, um, and we know that the Lord has done it. Um, and we stand with you, we celebrate what God is doing, and we're honored to be here over these days. Amen. Um, Lord, as we look to this passage, I pray that your word would come alive in our hearts once again. We know that it's living, that it's active. Do what only you can do, Holy Spirit, bring us beyond the things we feel we already know. Help us to discover beautiful insights revelatory truths 
in places that might have become familiar to us. Um, Lord, language that might have been formed over time or even statements that are familiar to us in the place of prayer. Lord, I pray wherever we may feel like we're standing this morning, um, may the floor open from under us and may we enter into new depths and dimensions of the beauty of the person of Jesus through the reality and the confrontation of seeing him in his word for he is the word made flesh and so we come to the written word because we want to encounter the living word Holy Spirit help us this morning to see this beautiful man once again Um, we have to have you Jesus Um, So would you do something in us to feed that hunger? Because you said those who would hunger and thirst, you would fill. Um, We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, This morning, it's going to be my goal to use Isaiah 56. Uh, I don't honestly know if we will be able to unpack all of the things that I have in my heart. Um, We have two hours before nap time, (laughs) as I've been instructed, so I'm going to try as best as possible to be faithful to that. Um, But we're going to look at Isaiah 56 this morning, and one particular verse that we'll use in order to enter into um, our subject matter, Um, the Lord is building his house. He's building his house. That's one thing that you can take to the bank. That's one thing that you can ultimately be confident of. As we said last night, no devil in hell, no scheme of the wicked one, no agenda from devils can derail what it is that God is doing. For God is working. And that's reason enough to shout right there. God is working. He hasn't stopped working. He has no plans of stopping. There's no agenda that can derail his purpose, his counsel, his will, his plans. And the word of the Lord will prevail. And God is building his house. Time is a container. And the church is a crucible through which the people that God is readying for his son are being fashioned. We understood, even as we glimpsed briefly last night, that we get these beautiful pictures throughout the scriptures of God's desires. We're going to continue in the journey rediscovering the value of ordinary and seeing the power of God's purpose through the process that we might not appreciate right now. And God is going to build his house. We get the glimpse in Genesis 2 that he's readying a bride for the son that is to rule all of creation, sharing intimacy and authority with the father. For he looks at the life of Adam, and the immediate evaluation reveals the eternal implication. I will make a suitable companion for you. I will ready a bride to rule alongside of you. Even as we said with the life of Joseph, the man, the brother, the favored son, rejected by his own, sent off into a Gentile land, 
ultimately landing in a Gentile prison through false accusation, being exalted in a Gentile world that draws his Jewish brothers into a place of nourishment during the days of famine. Joseph is giving us a prophetic picture of the end of the age when Jerusalem will become a hostility of the nations and there will be a price to pay for those that choose to partner with the Jews in the end of the age. We get it even in the life of Ruth where she rallies alongside of Naomi and Ruth is intentionally labeled as a Gentile rallying alongside of a matriarch, of a Jewish woman. And she says, though everyone else leaves you, your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. You get the glimpses of the end of the age where there's going to be a price to pay when the nations rage against God, his choice of the ruler of the nations, and those who love Yahweh and his ways. And where the Jews once again, when the nations rally around Jerusalem, there will be a severe price to pay. And you see it in the life of Joseph, exalted in a Gentile world. A powerful ruler in a Gentile world now manifested to his Jewish brothers. They don't see him the first time, but Zechariah 12, because God's going to be faithful to pour out grace and supplication so that they can glance or gaze or look upon the one that they themselves have pierced. And Joseph unveils himself to his brothers. We get these beautiful glimpses. We consider the life of John last night as a prototype of a type of people that God will establish as we lean in towards the end of the age, that he's conditioning to be readied for the crisis that is going to grip the nations. You do understand, we are not going backwards. The pressure will continue to increase. The raging will continue to escalate. The dark agenda and demonic desire will continue to saturate the nations. And unto this, Jeremiah says, if you simply run with men and it's wearied you, then what are you going to do when it's time to run with horses? We're not going back, but God is conditioning a people. And the primary way that he is readying this people, the crucible of the hour, is through the house of the Lord, or what it is that we would call the church. And this is what Isaiah 56 gives us. In verse 7, this is what Isaiah says. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. House, prayer, nations. We might not make it past house this morning, but the house will be enough, I promise. Um, house will take us the rest of our lives uh, in order to try to understand and to discern and then to give our lives in order to, by the power and the grace of God's spirit, to actually see established so that God can accomplish throughout the nations what it is that his heart is on fire for. But Isaiah gives us three words, 
house, prayer, and nations. And we have to understand house in a fundamental way. Because the way that we define house will determine a lot of what we become passionate for. You see, in this hour, we are being gripped once again because of the shaking that is coming on the world to understand our answer to a very important question. And the question is this, what is the church? What is the church? What is it? Who does it belong to? What purpose does it serve? Is the church really just an event center that's supposed to give informational TED Talks about deities and blessings and and all of the promises that we can lure you in to incentivize you and beg you to give your life to a Jesus that's interested in you. And we use things, well, like the Son of Man came to seek and to save that one that was lost. And we've been conditioned by the world around us to believe that even God himself has an American mindset where everything is reduced down to the individual desire of the eye, where I become the most important thing in my world and everything orbits around me and my wants and my dreams and my truth and everything has to be now relevant to where it is that I'm going and the things that I'm dreaming of. Uh, let, let me just, let me, let me help you out. You are not looking for a neat space for God to fit into your life. You are not trying to find the right compartment where if you just add enough of Jesus, he can bless you the way that you want to be blessed. You can have access to the things in the world that you want. You can fulfill all of your dreams and all of the things that you believe you're passionate about. You are not trying to fit God into your life. But the veil has been torn. The son of man's flesh has been pierced. And now by the grace of God and the tender mercies that he demonstrated through Christ on the cross. God has now invited us into a brand new life. He does not want to make you a better version of you. He wants to make you more like him. He's looking for more people that look like Jesus. It is his goal to conform you when you get born again into the image of his son. Not a more Christian image of you. Not a more worldly, religious, Jesus-talking, hashtag-posting, meme-frequenting image of you. But he's trying to make you more like himself. And he's repopulating the nations with the people that look like his son. Because there will come a day in front of all of us, I promise you, where we will realize and we will long in our hearts that we would have given more of ourselves to him in the hour of opportunity on this side of life that we had. There will come a day where you will no longer be worrying about wrestling with the will of God. Where you'll no longer be fighting with things that you know that God is saying. Where you won't be troubled because of how inconvenient God's spirit tugging on your heart is because of the other things that you're attracted to. Oh, I promise you, there will come a moment where you will wish, I wish I wouldn't have fought with you the way that I did. 
I wish I wouldn't have wrestled with you all the time that I did. I wish I wouldn't have considered so many other things to be more important than what it is that you were saying, what it was that you were stirring, the way that you were leading. John says in 1 John 2, at the end of chapter 2, there will be many that will see him and in his appearing, they will shrink back from him in shame. Leonard Ravenhill says we won't be five minutes into eternity without wishing that we would have prayed more, wept more, fasted more, cried out more. Five minutes into eternity. And God is building his house. And we have to, we have to first understand and even consider the question in our own hearts and not rush to an answer as if to assume automatically that we understand what the church is fundamentally according to God. Because in order to rediscover the definition of church, we have to look at the one through whom the unveiling, the unleashing, the inauguration of the church actually came through. And Bob Gladstone mentioned it Friday night. The first mention of church is in Matthew chapter 16. And he won't say church until they say king. And upon the rock, upon the bedrock of a people who carry the revelation of Jesus as king, a people who by the Spirit have seen something. They've caught a glimpse. They have a gaze now by the Spirit to see this bridegroom king, this son of man that will return in glory. Jesus says, okay, now, there it is. And on that rock, I will build my church. Let me, let me suggest to you, you don't have a church. You don't have a people. Jesus has a church. I will build my church. If you have a church, then it would imply that Jesus does not have the church that you say is your church because he said the church is my church and I will build my church. And when I build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we have to ask ourselves, what is the church? Because I feel that in our generation, there are two considerations. Is the church really an event that happens on Sunday? Is it an event, regardless of whether that fits in a 60-minute slot, a 90-minute slot, a two-hour slot, right? For those of us that are really radical and wild, a two-and-a-half-hour slot. Is it something that you attend? Is it something that when it's happening, you need to be in a particular place when it is happening so that while it is happening, you can participate or spectate or attend or hang out on the fringes and enjoy minimally your own self-interest through whatever the activity or said event is actually presenting? Is this really what the church is? And then for those of us that really want to get connected, then we attend faithfully. And then for those of us that we're like, we're really all in, then we start to give. 
And oh God, like man, if I can get somebody that attends and somebody that gives and then somebody that's willing to serve in one of the departments, like whoa, baby, we've got it going on. Is this the church? Is the church something that happens? We have to ask ourselves, is the church an event? Because I'm telling you, whatever you define it by will then determine the things that you are passionate about. It will determine how you reveal to others what is important to God and the way that you attempt to disciple them or condition them according to the revelation of God and a connection with God's purposes for their life. And if it is simply only to attend more frequently, to give more liberally, and then possibly to serve unconditionally, could this actually be what God was saying when he prophesied through Isaiah and then later through the mouth of his own son? My house will be a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus on his triumphant entry the king of all glory comes riding low in humility. And in Mark 11, he comes in on the donkey and they're singing his praise, Hosanna, Hosanna. But the next day they're shouting, crucify him, crucify him. It's funny how fickle people are. <laughs> he comes riding in and he comes riding low. He's so beautiful. And he approaches the temple where they're merchandising, they're branding, they're organizing. There's a financial motivation to his house that he's disgusted with. And he comes in and he begins to, as we understand, flip tables in some senses. And the zeal of the Lord for his father's house consumes him. And he says, my house shall be a house of prayer to all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves or a den of robbers in Mark 11. We have the same story in Matthew 21 with similar, um, similar ingredients to it. But it's not just den of thieves as if they're charging people more for doves than they ought to, although I'm sure they were doing that. Right? There's always a middleman fee. Right? Anybody who's been in sales, you understand. Right? There's always a markup. It's got to be profitable. I'm not, what's the point of doing it? But he said, you've made it a den of thieves. And I don't think that Jesus was primarily talking about the price of the doves. But I think that he understood that his father's house was to serve a particular purpose. In one, revealing God himself to a people. And then giving that people the proper place of access to God, like the Levites in Deuteronomy 10. A peculiar people called significantly by God to have access to him. And then through out of access to stand in his presence continually. To behold him, to minister to him day and night. And then throughout of what was accessible, they were then to live as representatives. Deuteronomy 10, 8 and 9. Out of access, we now become representatives. Right? The problem is we want to be representatives when we're not actually accessing something in God. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, now that we are born again, we are a family of new creatures. And this family of new creatures actually has a mission. For God has put a word and a ministry on our lives. And that word and ministry is for us to live as 
funny enough, representatives out of what we've accessed in God to now reconcile the nations to this God that has made himself available to us. And we have to ask ourselves, is the primary purpose of God's house to host events? I'm just going to close this. Is it to host events? Because there are two ways that we can define the church. It's either an event or it's a family. If my family hosted a barbecue on a regular basis, let's say once a month, how long would it take in my barbecue hosting efforts for you to begin to say, well, you know, the Dows, they've just turned into a barbecue. And so from now on, we're going to call them a barbecue. We're going to call them a birthday party. We're going to call them a, a thing at the park. Whatever. You create the terms. How long would it take in order for you to consider that my family in the place of identity and purpose and value has been transformed from what we were into now primarily being identified by the things that we host? How long would it actually take for that to happen? And is there a point along the way where you would have to evaluate how absurd this actually sounds? My family may host a bar. I don't care if I hosted a barbecue every day. At no point over 365 straight days would my family ever begin to be defined as a barbecue. Because even without the event of the barbecue, my family would still be a family. We would still have an identity in God. We would still have a purpose that we carry. We would still have a value on our lives. We would still have an assignment to express or to demonstrate. So with or without the event that we were hosting, we would still be what we are. Well, last year, as sad as this may sound, some experienced that they didn't really know what they were when they couldn't host the events that they had come to be defined by. Some actually lost their bearings. Some were actually put in the spin cycle of confusion and misunderstanding, thinking that God somehow was abandoning his purposes in 2020, or that COVID had caught him by surprise, or that somehow he was subjected to the agenda of the wicked one, and that a demonic advancement was more powerful than all of what God has set into motion throughout the nations, and that his house would actually be deconstructed by a virus that was swifting through the nations? Have you lost your mind? But when some couldn't host the barbecue, they didn't know that they were still a family. When some couldn't invite others to the birthday party, they didn't know their bearings in God. They still didn't have a mission. They were separated from a purpose. They didn't understand that there was still an assignment. And so we have to understand is the church an event or is it a family? Because I'll tell you, if you start with event, you don't necessarily always get family. Right? We're not a family because we all sit in the same place for 60 minutes on Sunday. 
right? I've got cousins that I've never met that I wouldn't trust with my kids, right? Like, we're, we're not family just because we all sit in the same place, just because we all subscribe to the same mission statement, vision statement, just because we all necessarily read the same book. I'm not talking about theologically. I'm talking about what God has revealed theologically actually becoming real foundationally in our lives practically, where our lives are now knit together and there is a shared life through the crucible of day-to-day ordinary where God is able to execute his purposes in conforming us to the image of his son and then releasing us to ready the nations for the return of that son. And if you start with an event, you don't always get family. Because those of us that have been around for any amount of time, you understand that there are different things behind the scenes that motivate said events. And that family is not necessarily always high on the priority scale. Right? At times, like Jesus encountered, there is a financial motivation that is fueling the activities of the house. And Jesus said, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. You are robbers. And you are robbing people of access to God. And you are robbing people of the crucible to be aligned to his purposes. And it's kind of a big deal. And if you start with an event, you don't always get family. But if you start with family, and if you go all in with family, then whether or not that family hosts events, that family understands. Because there's nothing wrong with the family hosting events, but the family does not find its identity in the events that it hosts. The family does not find its premier value in the events that it hosts. The family cannot be so tethered to or anchored into or bought into financially that their whole identity and sense of purpose now swirls around these events because when that actually happens, the events begin to eclipse the importance of people and you will do church and host church no matter who's actually present because the people are not what actually matters it's the activity that you believe you're responsible for oh god well how many did you have on sunday oh well brother we had 714 well who i I don't really know but there were 714 there and it didn't matter because every seat was packed and that's what we need and let me tell you how much money we brought in Well, why is it that the two premier questions whenever we begin to have conversation about church is how many people and how much money? Jesus said, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. You're robbing people of real access to God in the crucible of family and the fulfillment of his purposes. But when you start with family... We have to begin to see house as family. House means family to God. House, prayer, nations. We could simplify it this way. House is family. Prayer is ministry to God. Nations is ministry to others. We are a family of new creatures. We are a born again, radically transformed 
on fire people that God has now changed our lives individually. But God saved you as a person to make you a part of a people. God is a family man. So when we say family, we're not even necessarily leaving the definition of family up to our own desired terms. Because many of us come into family with expectations. We come into family with the projection of our brokenness, places where we're not healed, we're not whole, we have wounds, we have trauma. And now we come into family, but we come into family with the idea of what we want. And we begin to shop different families looking to have our needs met. We begin to shop different families longing for someone or something, some activity, some program, some ministry department in order to satisfy the brokenness that God himself has not been able to deal with because I've not dealt it over to him. And I'm looking at people to do what only God can do. And I'm always frustrated with people, even though in all of the situations, I'm the common denominator. Well, you don't understand, Mike. I've got a list of 17 people, and this one didn't do this, and this one didn't do that, and this one always this, and this one always that. And I'm like, man, 17 people? But wait, wait, oh, do any of these 17 know each other? No, that doesn't matter. They don't know each other. They were in different places, and yada, yada, yada. And it's like, but wait, wait, wait. You're the common denominator. In all 17 situations, it's all of the other people? So our definition of family is not left to our own desires. But we've received a definition of family through what we have seen in God himself. God is a family man. Because God himself is a divine community. He is father, he is son, he is spirit. And in this family fellowship, in the enjoyment of the Trinitarian fellowship, for the Lord our God is one, but he chooses distinctly to express himself as three individual persons. And these three individual persons are so unified. They're so beautifully one. They enjoy one another. They prefer one another. They honor one another. Even the son, I delight to do my father's will. Look no more. Hineni, I will go for you. I will lay down my life in order to see what's in your heart accomplished. And through the enjoyment of this family style fellowship, they say, man, this is so amazing. Let us, let us make some folks that we can bring in to how amazing this is. Right? God is all powerful, so he has no needs. But just because he has no needs doesn't mean that he doesn't have longings. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have desires. It doesn't mean that he doesn't want something. And so he didn't make us because he necessarily needed somebody else to talk to. But he made us because he had a desire to share himself, to bring us into a new experience of family. So that now as a new family, 
as a family of new creation or new creatures out of this new experience of family. We could now be a new expression of family to the nations. We are a sign. We are a wonder. The wall of hostility has been torn down. The eternal enmity, all of the weapons of the wicked one's warfare and his agenda to divide and conquer and breed hostility through the nations of the earth. We are a family. And there is one family. There is one Lord. There is one baptism. There is one spirit. There is one father. We are one people. There's not a black church. There's not a white church. There's not a Hispanic church. There's not, you, you come up with all the terms. There's not a yellow church, a green church, a brown church, a tan church, a red church. There is one church. And the idea of all of these distinctions or divisions in his church don't actually make sense to the one that the church belongs to. When you arrive into the age to come, you're not going to go looking for the black section or the white section. And part of what makes this family so provoking, so unnerving, so confrontational is that we are no longer associated on worldly terms. Hear me, Ephesians 2 says, for he himself has become our peace. That's verse 14. We understand that through the broken body of God's own son, bleeding out on behalf of his father's purposes, in delight, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And now the cross and the blood of Jesus has paved the way for a new family to repopulate the nations of the earth. The blood of Jesus has made a way for a new community of a new creation to take their place on the stage of history. And it is through this new family that God is issuing his purposes in their own hearts and then demonstrating or displaying through the announcement of the gospel to the nations of the world. He is demonstrating his desire to the nations. And while there is still time, giving people the opportunity to repent, join the family, get in the house, have access to God, and then minister to others. And this family is not associated on worldly terms. It's not political affiliation. It's not social class. We understand Jesus is not a Republican just as much as he's not a Democrat. Just as much as he's not independent. Right? He's not left or right. He's above. Right? So we understand. It can't be political affiliation. We understand it's not ethnicities. He wants every tribe, every people, every tongue. Revelation 5, 9, Revelation 7, 9, Daniel 7, 14, a beautiful people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Nations you don't like, people you don't prefer, those that you have a preference for, those that you have a prejudice against. Jesus is coming after them all. He's working out mission impossible. His spirit is at work throughout the nations. He's going to bring us together in a oneness. It is going to defy all of worldly wisdom. He's going to be glorified. He said, you in me and I in you and I'll be in them and you've given me glory and I've given that glory Glory to them so that they can be one. So that they can be one. How? 
not however they want to be, not because they all have the same amount of kids. Right, we've got five. Who wants to join the club? You're only allowed in if you've got five or more. Now, there, there are several of us. We all seem to be a part of the same church, too. It's a... People always say, man, y'all got a lot of kids. We're trying to obey the scriptures. You be fruitful and multiply. He doesn't say that I'm praying for them to be one on their own terms. Because they're all a part of the same social justice movement. Because they've all adopted the same hashtag. Because they all identify with the same stream or are part of the same denomination or have the same political affiliations. He doesn't say that I'm giving you the opportunity to be one on your own terms. Right? Because there is a worldly sense of unity. There's even a demonic sense of unity. Right? In Genesis 11, they demonically unify. This isn't like some new building project where they're just trying to superintend like a new section of the city. They're establishing a tower to reach up into the heavens because they know where God is and they're done with his leadership and they're coming to get him to overthrow him and to establish a name for themselves and God says man you guys are really like together in this Genesis 11 is a foreshadowing it's a glimpse of the raging of the nations and the picture of Psalm 2 and when the 70 nations mentioned in Genesis 10 join together It's a prophetic glimpse of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? It's futile. And the Lord himself comes down. And he disrupts their efforts. And he disrupts their ability to communicate. And scatters them throughout the region. Right? Language is important. Language is one of the ways that God himself builds. When God was hovering in the beginning of all creation and the Holy Spirit was brooding over the deep, waiting, longing for the word of the Lord to execute and to establish the desires that were on the Father's heart. God just didn't show up providing solutions. He came speaking. Language is vital. And so the language that we use, the terms that we create, and the definitions that then determine how it is that we are aligning people with passion should actually matter because it matters to God. And house is family. And Jesus prays in John 17, I'm in you, you're in me. I'm going to be in them. He's praying on the eve of his process unto death. He recognizes he's about to lay his life down. He will release himself into the hands of betrayers, into a brutal process. God has become a creature. He's entered into the human story as one of the humans. He is now subjecting himself to humility and to shame and to public execution in hopes that the laying down of his own life will give a witness of his love, yes, to all of the nations, but then especially to his enemies and even his executioners. And he says, I'm going to be in them. And the glory you've given to me, I'm going to give it to them. So that they can be one. Not one on their own terms, but so that they can be one even as you and I are one. Our definition of family 
comes through what God has revealed of himself. What we see in God now creates a jealousy for what we now understand God longs to see established throughout the nations. Our definition of family is in this fellowship that the Trinity enjoys. Our understanding of what family is is not according to our own history, whether with a desire to recreate or to dodge forever the experiences that we might have had in our upbringing. Even those of us who may have had the best experience in family is still falling incredibly short when our history in family is held up against or contrasted by what God has revealed about himself through the Spirit. But they're going to be one even as you and I are one. What in the world? Like, I mean, he, he didn't just up the ante. He didn't just lay the plumb line down or create a standard that was at least somewhat attainable, right? It wasn't like the reality show, TV, family, where like, man, like if we just kind of watch along long enough, or maybe like that idea of who we feel that is close to us in proximity that may have, I mean, they might not be the best, but they seem to be doing a little bit better than what I've been doing. The reference point is not anything that we have actually seen in the earth, but it has everything to do with what God has has revealed about himself. He said, if you want to understand family, you have to look at me. And out of what you see in me, I will now give you grace through the experience of family. We are baptized into a new experience of family, father, son, and Holy Ghost. And out of this experience, we now have grace to become an expression. But we're not expressing our own divisions and our cliques and our preferences and our prejudices and all of the worldly attempts to divide and conquer the witness of the gospel through the lives that we are living because you have to understand that there is an agenda to conquer our unity. Every conversation being wielded in our nation is an attempt to weaponize language in order to divide and create perpetual hostility between people groups. Well, you don't understand. Well, well, well I'm a Republican Christian. Well, well, you don't understand. Like, like I'm one of those, put whatever word you want before the word Christian. You're not an anything Christian. You're a Christian. And then out of a Christian, you now have discernment by God's spirit to know how to engage or to avoid these other conversations. But we're not trying to fit into the world's conversation because the gospel has given us God's conversation. And he says, I'm, I'm praying that they be one. Because I've given them glory for this. I'm praying that they be one. Listen to what Jesus is praying about. Listen to what he's interceding for. He's not interceding for wild meetings. He's not interceding for extended meetings. He says, I'm praying for them to be one. We understand through the writer of Hebrews that Jesus ever liveth to make intercession. 
that the times that we are able to glean from him interceding in the earth was not a momentary thing, but that it was a revealing of an eternal characteristic of who the Son of Man is. He is the great intercessor. As Corey said Thursday night, there's an intercessor seated in the heavens, and it's not a woman. Let me suggest to you that possibly, as we look at Jesus interceding in John 17, that a people that are one are the only thing that will satisfy that intercession of Jesus. A people that are one. But we have so many other motivations unto a people that are one. We have so many other desires that we've attached to the church. We have so many other benefits that we draw from the system of organizational life and brands and influence and platforms and performances. And I get it, we live in an entertainment-driven culture. There's Hollywood and the music industry and there's sports entertainment and so on and so forth. But if we're not careful, then the spirit of the age actually begins to saturate all of our motivations. And we too attach other desires to God's house, which is a family, and by way of family, I mean a real people whose lives are actually connected in day-to-day practical life. And through this crucible of the ongoing experience of the one another's, they are being fashioned into the image of Jesus. What I mean by the one another's is the 58 one another statements that you find throughout the New Testament. Bear one another's burdens. Love one another. Forgive one another and be tender with one another. Even as God was tender and forgave you through Christ. Stop lying to one another. Prefer one another even above yourself. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, but love one another authentically, deeply, real from the heart. The idea of one another's is you actually need another person in your life to live out what it is that the New Testament is creating or what it's communicating. That you can't do it all by yourself in the secret place with Jesus. You can't do everything that there is to do. And God can't accomplish everything that there is to accomplish when it's just you and him in some closet somewhere. Well, I don't believe that. Well, well first, I don't care. Like, I mean, because it's absolutely true. How would you actually test the fruit of the spirit that Paul lists in Galatians 5 if you did not have any other or a one another in your life. You can think whatever you want to about yourself so long as you are all by yourself. And Jesus is amazing so long as there's nobody else around. And I'm tired of talking to people that tell me they love ministry, they just can't stand people. I'm tired of talking to leaders 
that enjoy the platform. They enjoy the performance. They enjoy the influence. They enjoy the financing. They enjoy all of the opportunities. They enjoy being a part of the exclusive little social clubs and the cliques. But the thing that they have no interest in is actually what God laid his life down for. Well, how do you know God cares about people? He became one. He became a man. And now there's a man glorified, enthroned forever in the heavens. And there is a man that will come back for the family that he gave his blood to form. Because our life is both observable and it's measurable. This is part of what Galatians 5 is communicating. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness. Right? We understand that these are observable and measurable qualities. What I mean by that is there is a real work that is happening on the inside of us. And as that work is happening on the inside of us, we are now planted down in the midst of other people. And we are relationally connected to people and to circumstances. And it is people and circumstances that reveal the authenticity or the maturity of the work that is actually happening on the inside of us. So I need people and I need circumstances in order for me to understand the work of transformation that God has done in my own life, where at times I'm surprised by what comes out of me, whether negatively or positively, where I'm surprised like, man, I am what I am by the grace of God, which means I'm not what I used to be and I'm still in process. There's more to do, but my God, I'm not the thing I used to be. So I need people and I need circumstances because it is these two components that begin to demonstrate my life in real time and it is observable, meaning people get to watch me live. They get to see how I respond when the barista gets my name wrong on the coffee cup. They get to see how I respond. When they add that extra carton of eggs to my grocery order for the lady that's behind me, when I'm at the store and I end up paying for something that I didn't want, people get to watch me live. It's observable. We get to see you whenever people cut you off in traffic. We get to see you whenever people betray you and accuse you. We get to see you circumstantially, whenever we go through things that the rest of the world is going through. We get to see you when you lose the job. We get to see you when your kids are not acting up. We get to see you. It's observable and it's measurable, which means we can understand the process. We can understand the progress. And because it is both observable 
and measurable. These qualities that are listed in Galatians 5, these qualities which I like to call Jesus' roadmap to discipleship in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, those that are meek, those that mourn, those that love their enemies, those that are giving their lives in hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who consider it a blessing whenever they're persecuted, right? These are weirdos. But the character roadmap, the destination of discipleship in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Galatians 5, 2 Peter 1, Romans 5 even. The destination for discipleship reveals to us the type of people that God is after. He's not after something that he doesn't know what the final product is going to look like. He's not trying to figure it out out along the way. He is clear. He is determined. He knows what he is like, and he is trying to make more people into his image. And the book of Acts gives us another beautiful prototype. All right, I still have a couple of minutes before nap time. (laughs) Pastor David, I'm with you. And the book of Acts gives us another beautiful prototype. In Acts 1, we have Jesus alive from the dead. He teaches them about the kingdom for 40 days. He ascends into the heavens. The cloud comes down to get him. Right, that 1 Thessalonians 4, when he appears, we will rise to meet him in the cloud. After 40 days of teaching, he ascends. And they rally together in an upper room. It's always been interesting to me that it took 40 days of face-to-face with Jesus to bring them at least to an initial place of together in the upper room. And the spirit gets poured out, right? There's wind. God fills the house. He fills the people. He puts fire on them. He throws them out into the streets. There's tongues, tongues of other nations, right? The day of Pentecost is the reconciliation of the Tower of Babel. (laughs) And it says that in this moment, Peter rises, and he says, this is that. And he begins to declare a powerful word. He gets up to preach the beauty and the majesty and the soon coming again of the one that they have crucified. And Peter says, you crucified him, but don't you worry, you will see him again. And make sure that you are ready for his return. And we have this incredible articulation of Jesus. Their hearts are pierced. It provokes them and produces a cry within them. What must we do? We can't just simply hear the things that we've heard and then return to normal. We can't just hear the things that we've heard and then integrate back into the things we thought we wanted, what our life we thought we wanted it to be about. What must we do? And Peter says, repent, be baptized, be filled with the Holy Ghost, And then in one flow of thought, in one flow of thought, it says 3,000 were added. And then daily, they began to give themselves 
to the apostles' teaching. This is Acts 2, 42 through 47. Then daily they began to give themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to house to house, fellowship, sharing of meals, a broken life with open hands, and the sharing of their possessions, one with another. There was awe, there was wonder, there was glory. None among them had any need. God was in the midst of them, and God began to add to their number daily. They weren't giving away bicycles or Chick-fil-A coupons to try to get people involved with what they were doing. There was no other incentivizing other than the beauty and the majesty of Jesus and the reality that the king will come again. Man, at times I just think we don't understand his worth enough in order to present him as enough. We, we, we beg people, we plead with people, we incentivize them with all kinds of things. We lure them with attractional models because we think that these other forms of entertainment are actually going to last longer to satisfy the hearts of men. But we need to lead people unto an ultimate fascination with God, where God becomes the supreme obsession, where the beauty of Jesus is entertaining enough, and where we are actually discipling them and conditioning them to like the creature who from the first time they ever saw him have not stopped crying out, holy, holy, holy. They haven't gotten tired of it. They haven't thought they needed another song. They haven't tried to move on to the next thing. Right? We learn a lot about ourselves whenever things are actually happening. But we need to be discipling people into an ultimate obsession and a deep transformative fascination with the beauty of the person of Jesus. And God was adding to their number daily. But in one flow of thought, you have signs, wonders, miracles, outpouring, just absolute chaos out in the streets. You have a powerful articulation of Jesus. You have 3,000 that respond, and in one flow of thought, and then they began to give themselves daily to a certain way of life. Because I would suggest to you that there is a certain way of life that is the necessary wineskin container there is a certain way of life that best stewards what it is that God has revealed and deposited into our lives. That there is a way of ongoing, practical, ordinary, daily life that is actually helping in order to consistently condition us according to what has been revealed to us. And the things that we know are real are becoming real in us as we give our lives to a way of life. And they daily, I love that. Not 60 minutes on Sunday. Not 90 minutes every other Sunday for those of us that, we're, I mean, we're just busy, bro. Like, I mean, you got to understand, I, I can't be there all the time. Like, I, I got stuff going on. Man, like, you know, my team's playing on Sunday. Like, if you, bro, if you lost your mind, it's, a, it's, a, it's an in-conference game. Like, bro, it's serious business. And they daily gave themselves to a way of life. But Acts provides for us a beautiful picture. Because if we will see Acts as not only 
history, but also as prophecy, then we can understand that God's process produces a certain product. And that God is after a product. And I say a product not in merchandising as we started with as a den of thieves and robbers, but a product being a specific type of person. There is a goal for our discipleship. There is a goal for the reason that God's work is happening by his spirit on the inside of us. We're being conformed into a particular image and God understands what it is that he wants. He knows his agenda. He's secure in his desires and he wants what he wants. And Acts gives us an understanding of the product that the process produces. Because there has to come a point where we are evaluating our way of life. And through that evaluation, the conclusion that we come to, we have to measure it up against the things that God desires, what he says is possible, and even all of the provision that he has given. Well, let, me, let me just say it this way. God has invested a lot in order to make sure that he has every possible way to get what it is that he is after. God has given everything that he possibly can. He has given us himself. And Acts gives us not just history, but prophecy. And we're going to move quickly through a few chapters of Acts because I want to land at the end of Acts chapter 7 with a man whose face is on fire as he's interceding for his executioners giving a witness of God's love to his enemies and pleading with the Lord not to hold it against them for they don't understand. You can't fake this. When the squeezing of life, when the pressure of circumstances, when reality hits our doorstep, right, we always say, right, well, character is, or the possibility of character gets form in crisis. No, 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 crisis reveals character. Right, like crisis is not license for ungodliness. Right, well, this isn't really who I am, man. You just got to understand who, what I'm going through. No, 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 I think we need to see it a little differently. And when the squeezing of life hits a man's life at the end of Acts 7, we see what actually comes out. We see what the process has produced. We see the value of a way of life and all of what God was able to accomplish through one of his representatives, through one that had access, through one that lived as an ambassador, through one who understood the ministry and the word of reconciliation that Paul would later speak about. Interesting enough that Saul stood over the body of a dying Stephen. And in Acts 2, Peter preaches, we have all of these new creatures. These new creatures, yes, they get saved as people individually, but they get saved individually so that God can put them in a family. It's a person that becomes a part of a people, and this people is now committed to an ongoing way of life. And we can think whatever we want to think until the observables and the measurables start providing evidence, right? You can say all day, well, I'm just not a people person. Well, I just don't want to integrate other people into my life. 
Well, I feel that I can just attend the event on Sunday and then I can do whatever I want with the rest of the week. Well, I don't really see the premier purpose on investing myself because I've been hurt. You don't understand. Like, things have gone wrong. And at times, I just don't really like people. We can say whatever we want to say until the evaluation starts to provide the evidence. And then we have to talk about what's actually real. And what's actually real should lead us to investigate the way that we have set our life up and the things that we have called wisdom. Because if what we call wisdom is not actually producing the product that God desires, then we should be willing to return back to ground zero and to say, maybe I'm not doing this the way that is best in order to condition or disciple me into the image that God desires for me. And Acts provides for us, if we would see it this way, a journey. It's not just history, but it's also prophecy. Acts 3 tells us that Peter and John are walking to the temple at the hour of prayer. There's a man at the gate beautiful who's been lame from birth. They understand that they're not trying to satisfy the desires of the world with worldly resources. Silver and gold had we none. You think that's what you want? That's the conversation you're trying to pull me into? I'm not trying to satisfy the world's conversation. I'm not trying to give the world what they want. There has to come a certain point where we understand we're not building God's house according to man's desires. We're not laboring to see the house of the Lord established because of the desire or the pull of our city or even the people in our city themselves. I'm not trying to give my city what my city says it wants. I'm not trying to give people what people think they want. My efforts and investments in building is because I want to build him what it is that I know he wants, what I know he is after. And Peter and John say, we don't have what it is that you think you need. They're walking with signs, wonders, miracles. There's not only powerful declaration, but there's demonstration. This man is raised up. It doesn't create cheerleaders, but it creates critics. They actually seize them out in the streets. They pay a hefty price for what it is that God is doing with them, and they end up in prison. But even before the leaders, they are testifying. With great boldness, they are testifying, we have to obey God instead of man. There is an understanding as people are interacting with them. You've actually been with him. You've actually been with him. There's evidence on their life as they are living their life. They get released from jail. They run to a prayer meeting. <laughs> They know where the prayer meeting's happening because it's a way of life. They get released from jail and they run to the prayer meeting because they know where their people are. And they know that their people are going to be praying because they daily gave themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer and to house-to-house -house fellowship and to meals and to the sharing of their possessions. And Peter and John get released from jail and they run to a prayer meeting.
And when they run to a prayer meeting, they're not there to weep and to complain about all of the crisis that is hitting their lives because of everything that God does not seem to be doing for them. Because of all the breakthrough in their self-preservation that they don't seem to be experiencing. For they love not their own lives even when their lives were confronted with death. And they continue to overcome him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And when they get together in the prayer meeting, they say, if you'll give us more boldness, we'll go back out there and we'll keep living this life. If you'll touch us afresh, right? Acts 2, they were filled. Acts 4, they were filled afresh. They were filled again is the implications. The whole building where they were gathered began to shake as they were lifting their voice to God, not for him to preserve them from their troubles, not for him to release them from the consequences, not for him to just allow them a little safe space or a bubble so that they could be entertained and grow their brand and increase their influence, but they cried out for more boldness so that they could go back out into a hostile territory, radically alive with the purpose that God had. At the end of Acts 4, we have Barnabas who gets introduced to us. He's a Levite. Oh, Jesus. He's a Levite who brings all of the proceeds from the property that he sells and lays it down. Right? We understand from Numbers and from Deuteronomy that the Levites didn't have a material possession. That they didn't have a land that was allotted to them like the other tribes. Barnabas is being introduced as a Levite. The understanding that there are still a people through the work of God's spirit that will have conquered on the inside of them. The desire that was not able to be overcome in the heart of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. Looking in to the face of Jesus and then his love of this world and its material things for he was one who owned a lot of real estate in this life and the owning of real estate led him to the rejection of the invitation to follow Jesus the way that Jesus desired and Barnabas who is a Levite understands take the world but give me Jesus And he comes and he brings all of the proceeds at the end of Acts chapter 4. And then he is beautifully yet wildly contrasted with Ananias and Sapphira who in the opening of Acts chapter 5 want to benefit off of what God is doing. But don't want to actually be fully transformed through what it is that God is doing. And they want the appearance and they want the resume and they want the benefits of said activities. But they don't want to actually be deeply reconfigured on the inside into an authentic way of living and so they bring a part of the proceeds and people are dying in the church y'all like people are dropping dead in the church Peter says why would you lie to the Holy Ghost Right? Your problem is not with your leader. Your problem is not with some authority in your life. Your problem is not with whoever the person is that seems to be leading you or attempting to help fulfill God's purposes in you. Their problem was not with Peter. Peter didn't say, why are you lying to me? He said, why are you lying to the Spirit? That then leads into fear gripping the whole city. And not a whole lot of people wanting to actually involve themselves 
with this family of new creatures. God was in the midst of them. He was actively working on their behalf. And people were dropping dead. Which I'm sure was part of the reason for a lack of association. Peter's walking. His shadow is healing folks as it's cast over them. People are being delivered from demonic oppression and possession. Evil spirits are being cast out and broken off of people's lives. There's awe and wonder. God is continuing to add to their number. People esteem them in the city because they don't really understand what to do with them. Because all of the world's efforts can't seem to reproduce a people that are like them. And this leads us into Acts 6. Where we have an interjection, if you would, about a man named Stephen. And Stephen gets introduced to us because the search is on for people to serve in the food pantry. The apostles say we've got to get away from tables. We understand we have to give ourselves in a greater way to the ministry of prayer and the word. Find us seven guys. Grab me seven guys that are full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. You guys, by a corporate witness, by a corporate amen, bring us seven guys that are full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. Man, you need the Holy Ghost and wisdom to serve in the food pantry? As I joked last night, Jesus has much higher standards than we do. Right? At times, we just need somebody that's willing. Like, just give me Johnny. At least Johnny's willing to show up. At least he's going to be on time. Right? It's warm body syndrome. I know that he's, like, half saved. You know, but, like, just get me somebody that's actually just going to be there. And, like, we'll, we'll work it out behind the scenes. Jesus has higher standards. Full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. Give me seven guys. And there's a corporate witness. Man, these seven guys, they, they fit that description. These seven guys have the Holy Ghost and they have wisdom. And they lay hands on them and ordain them to the food ministry. Right? Now, now many believe, because here we are in Acts 6, and I know that we turn the pages very quickly, but many believe that Stephen would have been one that got born again on the day of Pentecost. That he would have been in the crowd, heard Peter preach, had a response to the gospel, and out of responding to the announcement of the gospel would have given his life to a way of life that now best made sense in light of his response to the gospel. Because there is a way of life that best makes sense according to the way that you have responded to what has been revealed to you by way of the announcement of the gospel. And Stephen has given his life to a way of life. And from the day of Pentecost, if like most believe, would be the point where Stephen got born again. Where then he got integrated into this family of new creatures. Where he then daily just began to give himself to what most consider to be very ordinary. House to house. Fellowship. Meals together. Times in prayer. Sharing our possessions. These things are ordinary. Like, give me the fancy stuff. Like, let me, give me the mic. I want to open in prayer. (laughs) 
Like, like, like when do I get to preach? Like, when do I get to join the worship team? I'm not interested in the ordinary stuff. Give me the extraordinary stuff. But Stephen would have got born again and would have immediately given his life to a way of life in a family of new creatures that was now in an ongoing journey to be conformed to the image of God's Son. And we don't hear very much about Stephen along the way. The idea is that he would have given his life fully into what everyone thinks is ordinary, and then all of a sudden, in Acts chapter 6, which may seem like a couple of pages, but most believe it's 8 to 10 years. And after eight to ten years of just being present in a people, just being faithful to ordinary, just giving himself wholly over to a way of life alongside in the journey with these other new creatures that God had radically transformed. The idea or the implications is that Stephen would not necessarily have been doing anything. Now the scriptures don't tell us, but the idea is that he would not have been doing anything necessarily that we deem to be all that important. And then all of a sudden, he rises out of ordinary as a man who is full of the Spirit and has wisdom. And then it moves quickly. And the next segment there in Acts chapter 6 is even Stephen is out in the streets. And there's power and wonders and miracles that are coming off of his life. Stephen rises out of ordinary. And he rises with a wisdom that is irrefutable. And he's debating And God seems to give a glimpse or to allow a moment to demonstrate what all along had been developed in the place that we call ordinary. Because so many times we exempt ourselves from ordinary, waiting for what the rest of the world says is extraordinary. But God gives us a glimpse. He provides us evidence that what was being developed in ordinary was actually extraordinary. And now the observable and the measurable of Stephen's life is they seize him in the streets. And they put him on trial. And they put Stephen on trial. A whole system, a whole religious facade puts Stephen on trial. And they bring an indictment against Stephen Because their perception of Stephen is Stephen's a troublemaker. And they don't know what to do with Stephen. And their indictment, their accusation, their charge against Stephen is that Stephen is not abiding by the terms of the system. But what they don't understand is that they are not the ones that are bringing an indictment against Stephen. Because Stephen is actually not the one that is on trial. 
Stephen is bringing an indictment by the evidence of his own life against an entire religious structure, an entire religious facade, an entire religious image that's filtered and financed and motivated by a bunch of other things than the purity or the authenticity of God's interest in forming a family. And Stephen is life is bringing an indictment against the system. And the idea is your system does not know what to do with me because your system has never been able to produce a man like me. Jesus rebuked them in Matthew 23 for being whitewashed tombs. Beautiful on the outside, with all their religious facades, all their imagery, all their language, all of the reasons that they had to create distance from the people. He rebuked them. John the Baptist rose out of ordinary with a rebuke for the religious system and its corruption. And Stephen is not the one that's on trial. They are. Their whole way of life is on trial. Their whole way of life, the evidence of what Stephen is, is creating an indictment against what they say is wisdom. What Stephen is, is creating an indictment against how they've set their life up, against what they say is the best way in order to produce the product that God is after. Because Stephen would have given himself to a way of life that he believed was God's process. Believing that this ordinary process was going to be the way that God was going to use in order to produce the product that he knew God desired. Because God is longing to transform lives. God is longing to conform people to the image of his son. God has a destination for our discipleship and he is raising up witnesses, representatives, ambassadors, laborers that will create that witness to the nations even at times through the laying down of our own lives. And Stephen is there and the whole system is on trial. And Stephen declares the beauty of this man. And at the, act of, or at the end of Acts 6, we understand that his face is glowing. Those who look to him, they'll be radiant. Those who look to him, they'll be radiant. Moses came down from the mount, and his face was on fire. <laughs> Stephen is standing, and his face is on fire. He can see Jesus in the heavens, and Jesus stands at the Father's right side. That's my boy. And Stephen is preaching, and he's providing an opportunity for repentance from a way, from a system, the reconfiguration of our self-nature. And through the preaching, they come to the point where they no longer want to hear it. And they cover their ears, and they begin to gnash their teeth. 
and they pick up stones and they come to rush him. And while they're running at him, Stephen is not running from them. Stephen is not retreating. He's interceding. He's weeping. He's standing. He's present. (laughs) And while they come to stone him, And ultimately to bring him to the end of his life with tears running down his face. He's interceding. Don't hold this against them. For they don't really understand. Sound familiar? Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. And Stephen gives his life. Stephen pays the ultimate price. Believing that the laying down of his life, God will use to provide a witness to his enemies and even his executioners in hopes that their calloused hearts would be pierced in order to turn them or to reconcile them back to the God that loves them and even at times loves them so much so that he is willing to use the lives of those that love him in a laid down way to create that witness of his love to enemies and executioners. Only a loving God with a wisdom that is so far beyond what we call wisdom could create such a scenario and say that it is good and working all things together for good and accomplishing my purpose. And standing over the body of a dying Stephen is one zealous Pharisee by the name of Saul. And you just have to wonder if Stephen's witness created a troubling in Saul's heart that when you turn two pages and you then realize as Jesus reveals himself to Saul as he's a hundred miles an hour in what is his own way, in is what he says is wisdom, as he reveals himself to Saul, 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 why do you persecute me? You have to wonder if the witness of Stephen's life was used as an instrument to crack the calloused heart of Saul and to bring one who was fully given over to the religious system and all of its ways and all of its facades and who was zealous and who said that it was right. You have to wonder if the witness of Stephen's life was one of the instruments, was one of the tools to crack the calloused heart of a zealous Pharisee named Saul to where the one that was actually chasing down those who were associated with the way, jailing them and executing them, that God cracked the calloused heart of a Pharisee and a zealot and integrated him in to this beautiful family of new creatures 
and now actually put a charge on him where he wasn't just going to be a part, but he was now going to be instrumental in leading the whole movement that would radically revolutionize the region. And even through the efforts of Paul's life, our lives are continually being transformed. House is family. And this house prays. It's a house of prayer. House is family because it's people. It's not a property address. It's not a physical construct. House is family because family is people. So house is family. Prayer is out of this access We minister to God day and night. Let the Levites arise. We will stand before him. We will minister to him out of beholding him continually. House, prayer, family that ministers to God as a way of life. And out of ministering to God, joining into the burden of the Lord and tending to the matters of his heart in an intimate way through consistent fellowship. We then minister to others. Nations. I like to say nations and neighbors. Or neighbors and nations. (laughs) It's time that we evaluate what we say is wisdom. It's time that we do a proper evaluation of the product that is being produced through the investment of God's own life that is happening on the inside of us. The evidences that we are provided as we journeyed through a few books or through chapters in the book of Acts is creating an understanding of the type of witnesses that are possible when our lives are processed by a certain way of life. (laughs) These witnesses are possible when our lives are given over to God's wisdom found in an ongoing, ordinary, life on life, Ephesians 2, our lives knit together is now creating a place of habitation for God himself, an ongoing, ordinary, behind the scenes, away from all the lights, camera action, and the possible performances and facades, an ongoing, ordinary way of life that requires one another in order for the continual testing and revealing to have its proper work in us. These witnesses are possible when we give our lives to the process that God has already prescribed that he knows produces the product that he desires. And rather than trying to reinvent the wheel, family is very offensive because man can't take credit for the idea. family is God's idea and it's so simple that it doesn't always provide the space for man to glory in himself 
it is simple and it is offensive because God is glorified in the midst of this family of new creatures who've given themselves to him in covenant loyalty and now to one another in covenant loyalty. And through the prescription that God has laid down, which is a way of life, we now give our lives over to a process that is going to have a powerful work in us to conform us to the image of God's son, which is the destination of our discipleship. We don't have all of these other weird metrics and tools and definitions of success. We want success to be what God says is success, which is the image of Jesus. And so this process is conforming us. It's conditioning us. It's discipling us. And this way of life is creating these witnesses that are going to be confrontational to the world. They're going to be confrontational relationally and circumstantially. And there must come a moment where we evaluate what we say is right, what we say is wisdom, what we call the way. And this isn't in some guilt-ridden, condemning type thing because there's grace. There's grace to come up higher. There's grace to repent of our own wants that are not in alignment with God's. There's grace in order to turn from what we say is wisdom or what the world says is wisdom or for what church in the past generation has said is wisdom and the whole system and orientation of events and entertainment that's not actually producing the type of witnesses that God's desiring. There's grace to turn the whole thing upside down and to get the house right because my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. I knew we wouldn't make it past house. Stand up with me this morning if you would. I want to be a witness in my generation. Hear what I said. I said I want to be a witness. I didn't say I needed to be famous. I didn't say I needed to be popular. I didn't say I needed to be powerful according to the world's definitions. I don't need to have all of the luxuries or the leveraged entitlements according to different systems and opportunities. I want to be a witness. Stephen was a witness. And God used him to give a witness of his love. And there was a demonstration of power that only through history with God and real transformation, when the squeeze of life, relationally and circumstantially, hit Stephen's doorstep, there was a witness that could only be given that had to have actually been authentic on the inside of him. And I want to be a witness. I want to be a witness. I want to be a demonstration of God's love and power. I want to be one that's been radically transformed into the image of Jesus. Who now, through whatever ordinary place, people, or at times, unique platforms, 
classrooms, gas stations, grocery stores, school campus. Through what ordinary places, people groups, or platforms may be afforded to me, I can give a proper witness in hopes that a people would be reconciled back to this loving Father while there's still time to do so. There has to come a place where we evaluate our way, where we find God's wisdom, we make the necessary adjustments, and we start to give ourselves in a consistent, ongoing, or like Acts 2 says, and daily, they gave themselves to this way of life, this beautiful wisdom, this heavenly prescription, this process that will lead to the producing of the product or the person, the witness. There's work in all of us to be done. And so this morning, I'm not necessarily trying to major on at times how we enter into a pity party for a lack of transformation. But this morning I believe that what the Spirit is working in our hearts is for a reconsideration of how we've set our life up and then to make a commitment before the Lord that in an ongoing way what must I do? I can't just hear what I've heard and then simply go back to the way of life that I say I prefer. What must I do? There must be a response. And just like Peter told them on the day of Pentecost, it's time to repent. Turn from your own way. Turn from what you say is wisdom. Give up your own desires, which at times are resisting the fulfillment of God's desires and radically align yourself with him. And so I'm gonna ask you this morning, and this is something that we all have to consider in our own hearts. Would you be willing before the Lord to say, if you would give me grace to do so, I will radically align myself with you and with your way, meaning a way of life. Because I know that that's where the beauty and the power and the grace and the extraordinary or the extraordinary is found and it's developed and it's matured and the stature is to be had in a consistent investment in ordinary. But this morning, Lord, if you would give me grace to be radically aligned to you and radically aligned to your way, if you would give me grace, then I will give myself to you this way. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We pray that it has fanned into flame the love that you have for him. If you would like more information about Burning Ones, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, visit our website, burningones.org, or download our app.